0: In 1829, a man by the name of George Wilson robbed the United States mail, killing a person in the process. Later, he was caught, found guilty, and was sentenced to die for his crime. Some friends intervened on his behalf and were able to speak to the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson. President Jackson gave Wilson a pardon. When Wilson was informed of this pardon, he refused to accept it. An appeal was sent back to President Jackson asking for advice. The president, not knowing what to do, turned to the United States Supreme Court. The court gave this answer. A pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that a person under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon. But if it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must die. The sentence of death was carried out even though a pardon was lying in the sheriff's office. This little anecdote illustrates... What we're going to be talking about this morning. This morning we're going to be talking about the operation of God's grace and how one accesses that grace. And the question that sits before us as it's been assigned, as it's in your program is, are faith and works mutually exclusive or do they work together in accessing salvation? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul talks about the operation of faith and how faith accesses God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Many look at this verse and conclude that we are saved by faith only. That Paul says, I am saved through faith, not works. Therefore, I am saved by faith only. There are three critical words to notice in verses 8 and 9. For by grace, grace is an important word, God's favor A gift. Salvation is God's gift to us. That's what Paul's saying. You have been saved through faith. Faith is belief. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And finally, works. And works simply mean action or deeds, an activity or an occupation. And there are different types of works that are brought out in the New Testament. We'll talk about those here in just a few minutes. But these two verses tell us that we are saved by more than faith. Remember those three critical words, grace, faith, and works. Are we saved by God's grace? Yes, absolutely. So are we saved by faith only? No, we are not saved by faith only. In the words of one commentator, no matter how much faith we might have, even that faith could not save us without God's grace making it possible for faith to save us. Faith depends on grace, therefore faith alone cannot save us. So those who say Christians are saved by faith only don't really believe that Christians are saved by faith only. They recognize that there are other spiritual components at work along with faith to the salvation of human souls. And we can look at other passages in the New Testament and draw this conclusion. Jesus in Luke chapter 13 verse number three offers three alternatives, pardon me, offers two alternatives. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. It seems reasonable to conclude that if I want to be saved, I need to repent. Romans chapter 10, verse number 9. We are saved by confessing our belief in Jesus with our mouths. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul says we are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3, verse number 5. Paul says we are saved by the mercy of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus says we are saved by enduring to the end. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, he says we are saved by losing our lives. James says in chapter 1, verse 21, we are saved by receiving the word with meekness. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 Peter says we are saved by baptism. So can we say with any degree of accuracy that we are saved by faith alone, by faith only? So if we're not saved by faith only, why does Paul exclude works? He says not of works, lest anyone should boast." As I mentioned earlier, There are different types of works brought to light by the New Testament. And there are certain types of works that do not save us. The works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 are, of course, synonymous with sin. These works condemn, they do not save. As Paul says in that passage, those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of God. So the works of the flesh do not save us. The works of the law cannot save us. This was primarily addressed to the Jewish Christians in the first century. One example is Romans chapter 3 verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law or apart from the works of the law. The works of the law represent obedience to the law of Moses, no one can be justified by the works of the law. Therefore, no one is saved by those works. Even those who lived faithfully under the old law required the sacrifice of Jesus in order to be justified. Paul brings this out in Romans 3.25. And When we get to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when he begins talking about Abraham, we need to interpret the meaning of those verses in light of what is said in chapter 3, verse 25. Abraham lived more than 400 years before the giving of the law. Therefore, he was not justified by the works of the law, but by his faith. So the works of the law cannot save us. There's one final type of work that cannot save us. And that's what I'm going to call works of righteousness or, if you will, works of merit. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Works of righteousness or merit would, of course, include the works of the law. But I believe there's a broader meaning than that. A lot of people believe that if you live a good moral life, you can expect heaven following your death. I also know people, and perhaps you do as well, who try to compensate for their past sins by filling their lives with good works in the present. Still others are told by religious organizations that if you say this prayer so many times, or give so much money, or spend so many hours performing good deeds, that your sins will be forgiven. What Paul says in these two verses is simply this. No matter how good a life one leads, no one can be saved by the accumulation of good works. Salvation comes by the mercy of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I acknowledge, freely acknowledge, that there are works that can neither justify nor save us. So what type of work does Paul have in mind back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? Well, it seems to me that works of the flesh are very much on Paul's mind in verses 1 through 7. If we retreat back to the first three verses of Ephesians 2, we notice that Paul describes our pre-Christian condition when we were dead in trespasses and sins. A life that was directed and fulfilled by the works of the flesh. But, he says in verse 4, God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The mercy and grace of God were applied in spite of our condition when we were committed to fulfilling works which condemned our soul. He reiterates this in verses 8 and 9. In eight and nine. By the grace of God, we are saved in spite of those works of the flesh. Therefore, we have no reason to boast. Later in chapter 3, Paul says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul recognized that because of his persecution of the church, because of that persecution, he counted himself as an unworthy apostle. He recognized that his works did not merit what God gave him. Therefore, he expressed a deep appreciation for what God had done to to him through Jesus Christ. Jesus, pardon me, Paul is placing his prior condition side by side with the grace offered through Jesus Christ. He's comparing this grace with our unworthiness because of sin. And this is a common feature in Paul's letters. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 15 and Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 11 are two similar cases. Here is the message of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Who among us could look At the sins which God has forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And boast about saving their own soul. When Paul states that our salvation is not of works. I believe contextually he is referring to the works of the flesh. That we don't deserve salvation on the basis of these works. go to another second chapter in the New Testament, James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, James, the brother of Jesus, the respected elder of the church in Jerusalem, has a different emphasis than Paul. James is not emphasizing God's grace, he's emphasizing justification. Those both work hand in hand, but James is thinking about justification. What makes us righteous in the eyes of God? Justification simply means that God makes right what once was wrong in terms of my sin. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. Or to put it another way, God makes me just as if I'd never committed sin. Just as if I'd never committed sin. And we're justified by several elements. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse number 9. We're also justified by faith. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. And in James chapter 2, verse 24, James says... You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. What is James saying? Well, James 2.24 means that God declares me righteous or I am justified by action, by deeds, by works. And not by faith only. How can that be? Is James contradicting Paul? Well, God views works that result from faith as different than those works that I talked about a couple of minutes ago. Works of faith are different than the works of the flesh. Works of the flesh is sin. Faith is obviously not involved. Faith is obviously absent in the works of the flesh. The works of faith are also a little different than the works of the law. The works of the law, the observation of holidays, the obeying of commandments, these things did not require faith. In Romans chapter nine, verses thirty-one through thirty-two, as Paul is trying to answer the question of how the Gentiles fit into God's scheme of redemption and what those, what the ultimate implications might be for for this idea, he says in Romans chapter nine, verses thirty-one and thirty-two. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. The majority of Israel failed to secure righteousness with God because they did not mix their observation of Moses' law, what Paul calls the works of the law, with faith. They did not mix their obedience with faith. Paul goes so far to say in Galatians 3.12 that the law is not of faith. The law did not demand faith in order to be kept. This is why the Holy Spirit moved Habakkuk, Paul, and the writer of Hebrews to emphasize the necessity of faith. The works of the law meant nothing without faith. The just live by faith. Justification to be considered righteous in God's eyes does not come from perfunctory, unbelieving observations. Faith makes it work. So the works of the law in and of themselves did not require faith. Therefore, they could not say. Works of righteousness do not require faith either. Agnostics and atheists find safe haven in more liberal Christian denominations and fill their lives with good works. They don't believe in God. The agnostic says, I'm not sure there is a God. The atheist says, there isn't a God. They sit in pews, liberal Christian denominations, and spend their time doing good deeds. Good works. Faith is not present. Those good works are not motivated by faith. Here is the message. We don't need faith in order to sin. We don't need faith to do well. Therefore, works without faith are meaningless in the eyes of God. In contrast, James says, if we truly believe in God, we act. If we truly believe in God, we act. He offers three examples to prove his point. The one with the living faith feeds and clothes the one who is hungry and naked. God's justification of Abraham by faith was fulfilled when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar. Finally, the harlot Rahab, her faith was made evident by the shelter she gave to the spies in Jericho. James says, if we believe, we act. And the writer of Hebrews offers the same message in Hebrews chapter 11. It's not just James that hammers this point home. If you read closely Hebrews 11, you will notice that by faith Noah did what? He built an ark. Abraham obeyed by faith. He left Haran and moved to Canaan. Sarah conceived a child, well past her childbearing years, by faith. Isaac, by faith, blessed Jacob and Esau. The faith of these men and women were reflected In their choices, their actions, their words. What if we claim to have faith, but we do not act? Well, James says we're no different than the demons who believe in God, but that belief does not compel them to obedience. We're no better than the demons. Well, if we truly believe, we act. Therefore, we are justified by acting out our faith. Faith and works are insuperably bonded. To extract one from the other nullifies the value of the one which remains. Three times James says faith without works is dead. And the reverse is true of well, as well, which is Paul's point. Works without faith lead to death. Faith requires action in order to be alive, as much as our bodies require a spirit to be alive. And faith is made complete by works. In James chapter 2 verse 23, James quotes Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Genesis 15 and 6, God declared Abraham righteous by virtue of his faith. This is quoted by Paul at least three times. Twice in Romans chapter 4, which I mentioned a little earlier, in verses 3 and 22, and later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. So Genesis 15 and 6 is quoted by James here, and by Paul three other times. And remember... In both Romans 4 and in Galatians chapter 3, Paul was correcting the misunderstanding that righteousness came by keeping the works of the law. That is a terribly critical point, properly understanding those passages. What's interesting about James 2.23 is that James conceptualizes Genesis 15.6 as a prophetic statement. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. James says Genesis 15 and 6 was a prophetic statement of sorts. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that God declared Abraham righteous by his faith, but that declaration was made in light of future events. What was fulfilled, or what fulfilled, I should say, what fulfilled Genesis 15 and 6? Well, notice what James says in James chapter 2, verse 21. What fulfilled Abraham being declared righteous in the eyes of God? His offering of Isaac on the altar. So in Genesis 15 and 6, Abraham is declared righteous, but in Genesis 22, He offers Isaac. He offers Isaac seven chapters and a couple of decades later. Abraham is declared righteous by faith before Isaac was born. But his faith was perfected or made complete or mature, if you will, by his offering of Isaac. And The scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Faith is incomplete without works. Works complete our faith. Like a good marriage, faith and works are a complementary pair. They work together in the process of justification. And in this respect, faith is no different than other important theological elements Obedience requires action. Luke chapter 6 verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Love requires action. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John chapter 3 verses 18 and 19. And when. We act out our love for one another, James says, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. When I act out my love for others, I can have confidence in my salvation. Obedience requires action. Love requires action. Repentance requires action. Crowds that came to John the baptizer were told, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And in response to that command, the people ask, What shall we do? What shall we do? Three times they asked that question in Luke 3, verses 10, 12, and 14. And that to me is a bit of an echo of what's said in Acts chapter verse 37 men and brethren what shall we do these people want to know how can i turn my life around and be pleasing in the eyes of god to the people john says share your extra tunic and food to the tax collectors he says don't collect more than what people owe in taxes to the soldiers he says don't abuse your authority and be content with your pay how they acted demonstrated their repentance. So action goes hand in hand with obedience, with love, repentance, and faith. What about grace? What about grace? How does this fit? Into to this picture of works of faith. Well, we must remember that within the Jewish Christian community, Paul's day, there remained a vibrant belief that one was justified by continuing in the works of the law, by observing the law of Moses. One of the earliest controversies in the church is found in Acts chapter 15, verse 5. There was a loud segment of the early church which insisted that it was necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised and command them to keep the law of Moses. This was a great tragedy in Paul's day. And it serves as a warning to illustrate to Jew and Gentile alike the futility of merit-based salvation. We talked about this earlier in Romans chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. Why did Israel not find righteousness? Because they didn't mix their obedience with faith. You see, it wasn't Israel's obedience that was their downfall. Because they did not mix their observation with faith. An unscriptural emphasis on earning our salvation through works does in fact negate the role of faith and ultimately of God's grace. Which is why Paul warns in Romans 4.4 that to him who works the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. This leads to a critical conclusion. Our good works cannot, on their own merit, save our souls. Works of faith, by themselves, cannot justify us. We all require the blood of Jesus Christ. A sacrifice above and beyond what we are able to provide for ourselves. It's only in his sacrifice that we find full justification in the eyes of God. That, brothers and sisters, is grace. God freely does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But in order to receive God's grace, the Lord has set certain conditions. We see examples of this. In the miracles of Jesus. For example, John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. They come across a blind man. The disciples ask, is this man blind because of some sin he committed or some sin his parents committed? Jesus says, for neither, but that the works of God might be made evident. He tells the blind man... He slaps some uh, mud on him and tells him to go wash off in the pool of Siloam and he'll receive his sight. In that miracle, does Jesus set certain conditions in order for that blind man to receive his sight? Absolutely he does. If he rinsed that clay off of his eyes in the pool of Siloam, his blindness would be cured. Did the pool of Siloam or the clay, healed the man of his blindness. Well, neither. Jesus healed the blind man because he obeyed by faith. If the blind man went to the pool of Bethesda or tipped a jar of water over his eyes, would his eyesight have been restored? No. The command was to wash in the pool of Siloam, and the guarantee was only good if the blind man followed Jesus' instructions. Could we say that the blind man earned his healing? No. How could washing clay off your eyes in a specific pool earn one his eyesight? But was fulfilling the condition necessary in order to receive this gift from Jesus Christ? Absolutely. The blind man obeyed, his sight was restored, and he went on his way rejoicing. Does meeting these conditions diminish or nullify the wonderful gift that Jesus gave this man freely? Absolutely not. By no means. Who could for a moment boast that by doing something so insignificant, we could earn something so great? If God commands and I obey, is he really indebted to me? The parable of the unworthy servant, the unworthy slave, comes to mind. This parable frames our relationship with Jesus as our master, frames our relationship in terms of a master-servant relationship, a command-obey relationship, if you will. As Jesus points out in that parable, an obedient servant does not come in from the fields expecting his master, to reward him for doing his duty. In like manner, Jesus informs his obedient servants not to expect any special treatment for following his commands. In fact, the only thing we should expect is more work. Even if we were able to follow every command, Something that, in my mind, is impossible hypothetically. Even if we were able to follow every command, what does Jesus say? Declare yourself an unworthy servant. You've done what is your duty. We have curried no special favor. We have merited nothing. We have not benefited God in any way. Nor is he obligated to reward us. The bottom line is this. An obedient servant has no reason to boast or brag. And innumerable reasons to count themselves unworthy. Which takes us back to Ephesians chapter 2. Our unworthiness side by side with God's grace. How could I believe for a moment that my obedience to God's commands earns my salvation. I am like the blind man who is simply meeting the conditions he establishes with no expectations that I will be handsomely rewarded for doing so in the end. As I begin to wrap this up, I think it's time to just mention the elephant in the room. Where we often run into disagreement on this topic, we often run into disagreement over the topic of baptism. That whenever we talk about the Bible's command to be baptized, a command that Jesus issued, that Peter echoed, the rest of the New Testament teaches. Whenever we bring out the necessity for baptism in order to be saved, the reaction often is, well, we're not saved by works. The sinner's prayer assumes that prayer is not a work. Is that a biblical assumption? In Matthew chapter 6, In the first 18 verses, Jesus teaches us how we should conduct ourselves in charitable deeds, in prayers, and fasting. Jesus is, of course, encouraging us to be humble when performing each act. That disciples should conduct themselves privately and not seek public attention or praise. Or, he concludes in all three instances, your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, Jesus establishes the baseline for our conduct clear back in chapter 5, verse 20, that our righteousness should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And those are the people that Jesus is referring to when he talks about those who pray for show, who do their charitable deeds for show, who fast for show. These men are hypocrites. Later in chapter 23, Jesus says about these men, all their work they do to be seen by men for a pretense literally a public show of piety for this reason they make long prayers so from Jesus' perspective prayer like charitable deeds and fastings is a work prayer is a work The sinner's prayer is a theological straw man. It's presented as a non-work method to secure salvation. All the while prayer, particularly public prayer, is depicted by Scripture as a work. It's a deed. It's an action. In contrast, baptism is depicted by Scripture as a work of God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is a circumcision made without hands. It's without human hands or apart from human operation. We've been raised with Jesus through faith in the working or through the operation of God. We have a faith in who's working? God's working. What takes place in baptism is the power of God, not our own. When I am baptized, who is really doing the work? God has spared my life though I am deserving of death. Jesus Christ has died and shed his blood for my sins. It is the word of God which, when meekly planted in my heart, produces faith. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In baptism, God cuts the death load of my sins away. The Holy Spirit raises me from a dead man to a new creation. I don't place the Holy Spirit in me. God places the Holy Spirit in me. And it is by the name of Jesus Christ that I am saved. Yes, baptism is a work of faith. It is an action which must be undertaken. But who is really doing the work in baptism?